Welcome to the Small Nonprofit Podcast with down-to-earth practical advice on how to get things done in your small organization. You are going to change the world and we can help. Hello and welcome to episode one of the podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Anya McGlynn. Hello, everybody. So today's interview, I think, is relevant to every single organization. And we are demystifying with my friend Paul Nazareth, planned giving. Most people, when you say planned giving, they have sort of a combination of reactions. One Mm -hmm. is like, please, can we not talk about this? (laughs) And the other is like, oh, but we really need to be doing it and we're leaving a lot of money on the table. Totally. And in our both of our experiences, it's really like planned giving is a scary topic because it involves kind of the two things that no one wants to talk about, but are, you know, we've all heard they're inevitable and, and the only things guaranteed in life, which is death and taxes. <laughs> totally. But it's, it's so meaningful and so much about legacy and remembrance. So Anya, right. you recently wrote an article that I, I thought would be a really interesting mm-hmm. thing to, to talk about. Yeah, um, yeah. I wrote a piece for for a charity village around planned giving, and and starting with with the premise that um, that if you feel uncomfortable talking about your donors about planned giving, that that it probably says more about your feelings about death to, than it does about the actual conversation. And one of the things that that I learned, um, you know, unfortunately through through a series of losses in my life, um, one of which included my mom. Um, was that death actually doesn't end a relationship. It changes a relationship. So, uh, and I think that that's true about, you know, um, a, a donor's relationship to their, an organization, right? It's uh, just because they've passed away doesn't mean that their relationship has ended. It, it, it in fact, opens a, a door to a new kind of relationship that they could have with the organization. So, so I think, you know, part of the article was, was about, like, you know, what does it mean to get comfortable with your feelings about death? Um, and, and what does it mean about um, changing the conversation about, you know, loss or death to one about legacy memory and, and, and one's impact over time? Um, so I think, I think Paul, you'll, you'll hear in the interview, really starts to tease that out. So it's really great. Definitely. Paul really breaks it down. He gives you very specific action items on what you can do to introduce plan giving into your organization without creating a whole new program, That's right? right? That's the thing that's so important is yeah. how do you do build this into the things that you're already doing? We don't want to make that much more work for you. That's right. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a lovely way to introduce the interview yeah. with Paul. So here we go. Great. Paul Nazareth is the Vice President of Education and Development at the Canadian Association of Gift Planners. Paul is an exceptional individual who has spent over 18 years in the philanthropic sector, uh, most recently as the Vice President of Community Engagement with Canada Helps, where he and his team worked with more than 18,000 charities, thousands more donors, and hundreds of advisors. He has been the philanthropic advisor with the Scotiabank Group and has spent more than a decade with charities such as the University of Toronto and the Catholic Church of Greater Toronto. Paul also teaches a national online planned giving course with the postgraduate fundraising program at Georgian College. He is the chair of the advisory team for the Humber College postgraduate fundraising program and a national instructor on tax and philanthropy with the Canadian Association of Gift Planners. 
He sits on several charity boards and writes about philanthropy for a variety of publications. And of course, he's a regular speaker at professional advisor gatherings such as CPA and STEP, as well for as for groups across Canada, such as advocates, CFA societies, and estate plan giving councils. He's also been featured in the Globe and Mail and Forbes. All right, Paul, welcome to the Small Nonprofit Podcast. I am so excited to have you here, especially talking about something that I think terrifies most small nonprofits, planned giving. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to love planned giving? And I do love it deeply. And one of the reasons is, is it actually because of what was the inaccessibility. Uh, there's charities that I care for so much. And one of the things that frustrates me so much are quite a number of these causes are causes that deal with society and knowledge, uh, not just the arts and things like that, but actually causes that are technically immortal, supposed to be around forever. You know, we're sitting in a public library and we want these things to be around forever, but the organizations don't think like forever. They think of administrative terms or their own terms, but when it comes to the mind of the donor, they want this organization to be around and they will do something to make sure that it's there. So plan giving is just a facilitation of how everybody feels about this organization and people deeply love the charity that you work for. So let's make sure that we can help them really feel that and express that to the organization. Amazing. I think that there's a number of barriers for organizations to really invest in planned giving. Um, and I want to hear what you think about them and, and maybe some tools to help overcome them. One is the mindset. We don't like to talk about death uh, and we don't like to talk about money. So it's really not a good recipe to talk about both of them. How, how can you shift that for people to say, well, actually, this is a really important conversation. You know, again, it's it's framing it in the relationship of the donor with the organization. So many donors are there because they support the organization currently. And this is really not talking about fundraising. It's about talking about the future of the organization. You know, we're actually sitting a matter of feet away from where I had my first plan giving conversation with the charity I care for. I was making a, a will and was uh, supporting my organization's tie to my faith community, my alma mater, where I met my spouse and all my friends and everything. And I have a deep love for public libraries. And when I was talking to the staff member, really the conversation, and it wasn't the plan giving person, it was one of their regular staff. And they were really concerned with getting me to this gala dinner that they had. And they were really pushing selling the ticket. And I literally stopped the conversation and I said something that would, that freaked literally the staff person started sweating. And I said, I don't think you understand this. I would die for you. And they were like, what's happening right now? I said, I love <laughs> this institution. You're a hundred plus year old institution. It, this institution changed my life because it gave me access. And when I was in my career, I worked in nonprofits forever. There's no PD budgets for us in small charities where I was at the time. And I said, this institution really helped me. And I want to make sure as I'm thinking about forever that this institution is part of that conversation. And they just literally started to sweat. And they were like, I don't, I don't know how to talk about this. And I said, I love the organization. You're in fundraising. So what do I do? Because I need to support the organization. We do it now. It's clearly, I can go to this dinner, but what do I do for the organization long term? And often people overthink this part. That was my next question, or my next, I think, barrier for a lot of organizations is they're struggling 
to get through the day without working 24 hours and making sure they eat their lunch. And so in my experience, they're really focused on fundraising that's going to bring the dollars in now. And we hear that a lot from our clients, which is like, okay, we need the money. We need the money. But plan giving is, a, is, a, is the long game. Mm. Um, so how do you balance that? You know, part of what great fundraising is, is it's a conversation. And like anything, it's call and answer. And what's really interesting is organizations, they often do know how to deal with an, a donor who loves the organization. They say, here's how you can help. And we've got this campaign here and these opportunities. But when someone says the word forever, you need to connect that to plan giving. You need to connect that to bequests. And where they overthink it is, they then they say, now we have to roll out the suite of options. Where it is, in fact, 90% of plan gifts are bequests. And in fact, that's a failure on both sides. This is actually the donor saying to us, I've seen your marketing material. I choose death. <laughs> because what you said to me is so complicated and so I got to go see a lawyer and do all these different things and maybe talk to my financial advisor. I'm just going to put it in the will. And then when I'm gone, you can figure it out. But what the charity needs, the single most important thing that they could do after this podcast is to make a bequest document. It is a one pager with your legal title, your charitable registration number, and a basic bequest wording that you can pull off the internet. That's all you need. When someone says the word forever, you need to say, well, here's what we have. That's amazing. And the other thing I love about that is, in my experience, a lot of bequests that I've seen come in secretly, I don't want to admit, but um, unannounced or, or unaware that they were coming, but they were coming from donors who maybe gave $100 a year for 15 years or something like that. But the, all of a sudden, you have a $10,000 check uh, from their estate. And it really is about amplifying that impact, right? We might not be able to do much today, but we can have a really big impact. And bequests are not just coming from, you know, your traditional major gift donors. They can come from anywhere. Well, you know, this is the challenge, too, on the marketing side. you got to bring it back to basics. Who loves you the most? Right? This is the challenge too. Who would really give you, and this is what putting you in a will is. Putting you in a will is making you part of a family, making you one of my kids. That's what putting you in a will is. So who's more likely to give it to you? A major gift donor who you convinced to give, who's given one time forever, or the person who made you part of their budget? Your groceries to them. If they're a monthly donor for the last 10 years, you're important to them as bread and milk. So that's the person that's going to make you part of their family. And again, in the marketing uh, kind of language, we find that actually more than 90% of bequests are not known. So they're often coming in unannounced from that regular long-term humble donor. So this is the good news for a lot of small charities and nonprofits. They're actually Great news. way ahead of the game. It's much harder for a large organization to convince someone in their major gift culture, they're actually overthought on fundraising. For a small organization, step one is who loves us the most. I love that um, because I do think it's transformational for small organizations and they don't have to look far, right? We always hear, you know, we don't, I don't know anyone who can give. And the reality is these are people who are already giving and it's not necessarily big amounts, but it's consistency. I think that's really, you know, people are sitting on a gold mine. Um, and I, I really appreciate that one page bequest document that, that organizations can prepare. And that's 
great for reacting to that conversation, as you said. Are there ways that organizations can build in little uh, language or tools within all the other things that they're trying to get done and out the door on a regular basis to start to trigger that conversation or make people aware that they can have that conversation with you. So we've talked about the simplest buy-in is making that document, making sure that document's at the front desk, and all staff know to hand it out whenever somebody says, will bequest forever love you. That's it. It's a Pavlovian response. The next level up is actually, it was at the heart of, uh, so, so I'm, you know, I represent the Canadian Association of Gift Planners, the Plan Giving Association of Canada. And in our conferences, so many marketers want to innovate. They do all these studies. They try to push forward. And actually, in 20 years, what they've found is the single most important marketing thing you can do. This is step two after the podcast is make sure you have only two check boxes on all your direct mail going out the door. The first one says, I would like more information on leaving the organization in my will. And that will make sure that you have a healthy lead generation for bequest conversations going forward. You don't even need direct mailers on just bequests. You need to make sure that this checkbox is there. But the other part of this is the fallacy that plan giving is just deferred gifts. Mm -hmm. Plan giving is cash money. So the second checkbox needs to say, I'm interested in supporting the organization using public securities, stocks and bonds. So if you do those two things, you'll cover your basis for today and tomorrow. So that's all you need, everyone. is, And I think that that is beautiful in its simplicity because it's absolutely right. It's, you know, letting people self-identify, but having, it doesn't have to be complicated. One page is all it takes to give someone the information they need. And that's something that you can totally do. And maybe we can even provide some examples for people or link, uh, link you to some resources. And so that's good. That's enough, right? That's, that's, I mean, that's how you get started. Yeah. Right. So then I have two questions. One is talking about recognition of those donors and then what's step three or maybe recognition is step three, but then what's the next level of, uh, active fundraising around plant giving? You know, one of the reasons why, again, on the marketing side, we often talk about these as step one and step two, and that could be enough for a small organization, is does the organization have fundraising capacity? So if you're an ED and a finance person and somebody doing programs and you don't have a full-time fundraiser, you kind of don't need to go to step three and beyond. Because, you know, it's interesting, all these famous marketers who try to go beyond those checkboxes said, we've actually done something bad for these small charities. Because if we do more proactive marketing campaigns, they can't even follow up on the leads. So what these two checkboxes do is, yes, they create leads, but in a lot of cases, they're actually creating the gifts. People are saying will, making the connection, going to your website. They're downloading that bequest wording and they're doing it. And then when it comes to securities, they can look it up and the donors now are more savvy than ever. They can even say, I was about to make this gift. And it used to be that securities were major gifts. Now in 2018 and beyond, they will be annual gifts Mm -hmm. because now you've got people like Canada Helps and other players who've democratized access to securities so they can make a $100 donation using stocks. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And it's definitely the, the one thing I learned early on is you really can't judge a book by its cover. Uh, and I find that small charities are particularly, um, hard on this, which is 
they see someone who's giving $50 or $100 a year and they just assume that that's that's capacity but be you know making gifts through stock through planned gifts bequests really uh, expands someone's capacity to support your organization in a way that's really important to them so um that is that was great so in terms of recognition right i think that's also really scary for organizations because like oh my god this person just raised up their hand and they want to leave us money what do I do? Like, how do I make sure that they don't change their mind? You know, it is tied to the other side of recognition, which is stewardship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. When I was at a large organization, I used to be made fun of by a lot of my, I came from a faith-based community, and I used to be made fun of by a lot of the big fundraisers who said, it's so cute that Paul likes to send out Christmas cards to donors. And I was like, listen, bequests is a long-term conversation that is actually completely revocable. If they're ticked off at you, or if they even lose interest, they can take you out of that will anytime. All you've got to do is stay in touch. One, again, this is another advantage point for small organizations because actually a lot of these donors who do this are aggressively and dangerously humble. And what I mean by that is if you overthink it and if you try to do really big fancy things, they'll get angry. Right? We're talking about your mom and your grandma here. And if they see fancy, you know, thank you brochures and all of that, they'll say they don't even need my money. So actually the beautiful thing about recognition of planned gifts is that it's highly customized. It's highly uh, connected to that donor story, but the simpler, the better. I love that. And that's actually a huge asset for small organizations that aren't managing hundreds of thousands of donors is that you can really connect with your donors in a meaningful way through stewardship. What are so You mentioned the cards, which I love. What are some of your other favorite ways to steward uh, planned donors? Well, again, we sought innovation. I've been in this, in this game now for 18 years, and we were trying to figure out what new ways can we thank donors. We did surveys, and I talked to a couple hundred different organizations, and it all came back to the fact that the most, the most positive and the most well-responded to by the donors... <sighs> Teas and tours. So you'll see a legacy tea and everything. And again, there's a little bit of the old school here talking about coming in for tea or whatever. It was really more about having people in to gather and say thank you. Hearing a thank you from the organization to say, you have made us part of your family, your priorities in this life and the next. We are deeply grateful. Yeah, and sometimes there's a tour tied to that. And again, it's just more letting them know what the organization is going to do with your money in the future. Again, we spend so much time talking about today. But when someone says, I'm going to give you money in the future, you just got to even let them know you're going to be around. So the teas and tours are a really big one. If there's a next level up, and this was so frustrating, because I actually really don't like this recognition gift, pins. I got some donors that are members of so many legacy societies. The donor looks like the the head of a, a dictator of a small Latin American country. It's good that our donors are bulletproof now because they're covered <laughs> in covered pins. In metal. Yeah. Uh, but but they love them. And again, it's a reminder to us that this type of donor, and I'm not talking about older or the civic generation or ever. I'm talking about a loyal donor because actually one of our challenges now is that millennials in their relationships with charities look a lot like 90-year-olds. Mm-hmm. It's about loyalty and longevity. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about teas and tours a little bit because that's so inexpensive to run. Uh, can you walk us through what a really successful one looks like and and maybe talk about how to make it meaningful, not just um, 
you know, they're not flashy. They're yeah, humble. I, well, this is a superpower yeah. of small organizations. This is actually where small charities and nonprofits can outmaneuver the big organizations because the big organizations are clunky and don't know how to not overthink it. Really, it's about gathering people, bringing them, if you have a space, into that space, saying a heartfelt and deep and authentic thank you to them, and then just, again, not going overboard talking about the mission or the campaign or anything, just simply saying, here's what we do today. We want to let you know that this will continue forever because of your support. And actually, the simpler uh, and even the shorter, because we even tested, we, uh, you know, I've done this for four or five different charities uh, officially, and then through the association, we've been bringing in peers to talk about it forever. And it's about that short thank you, about that gathering. In fact, there was one of them where we saw the invitation look like this weirdly small accordion book. And we were like, what are you doing here? And they said, oh, 90% of people we invite to our legacy tea can't come. Because actually anybody under 50 is working, anybody outside of our region, we're a national organization, is not going to fly here for a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. So we use the invitation to steward them, to say, here's what we're doing as an organization. And again, it will continue forever thanks to your help. That alone is enough for them. But heartfelt, authentic, simple, light touch. And now with technology, I mean... Invitation like that sounds beautiful, but my like small nonprofit radars are going off like expensive. Uh, but with technology, you can do so many really cool things, and video is a really great way to connect with people as well. So uh, it doesn't. I think it it has to make sense for the organization, as you said, and really um, be meaningful and mm. thank the donors. That's what it's all about. And I do want to note that actually these donors are hyper um, sensitive too expensive. They don't like it. So again, wonderful superpower for small organizations. The simpler it is, the better, right? We're talking about Red Rose, not Tedley. (laughs) Amazing. Um, I want to talk about one of the other, I I feel like is a myth, which, which is who, outside of their giving habits to your organization, what else or I guess what's a demographic or is there a demographic? When is the right time to start to have the conversation? And I think there's a lot of misconceptions around that. So I'll let you. Oh, my, one of my first charities, the, my executive director introduced me to a donor saying, so-and-so, you're old. Paul is our plan giving guy. Oh He's going to show you how to give us all your money when you die, which won't be long from now. <laughs> and I was just kind of like, I would like to crawl into a hole. <laughs> Uh, but the challenge, too, is, and again, there's so many misnomers around this. And we know, actually, I worked in a bank for a while in a trust company. And they talked about Canadians making a will at three times in life. Once between 40 and 60, one between 60 and 80, and one 80 plus. Which one do you as the charity want to be in? And people will often say 80 plus. Well, it feels like the money might come sooner. Well, the key thing is, you just want to be in the last one. But actually, we don't ever know what the last one could be. Not about necessarily just people passing away, but we don't know when they're never going to touch their will again. Quite a number of wills are made when people are in their 60s, and they die in their 90s, and they've never touched it again. So really, it's all about age and stage, and this is where all the other gift vehicles come in. It isn't just about bequests, but it's about life insurance, RRSPs, other assets, and there's different ages and stages tied to those assets. So this is where things get a bit more complicated in how and when you pitch. But again, if we keep it simple, if we go back to who loves you and why, and every interaction you have with them, making sure that you say the magic word. And again, this is the power of plan giving. All other fundraising is an ask. 
please give. Give now, donate now. Plan giving is always the magic word, if. Mm-hmm. If you care, if you'd like to give, if this has touched you, when you use that passive language and the person really loves you, that's actually when they act the fastest. Yeah. Yeah, that's so comfortable, right? Like, what I love about this conversation is these are really simple, comfortable things. And I think a lot of people associate planning with discomfort. So uh, it's actually the opposite, which is great. Um, So now that you have a great program, you're starting to steward your donors, I want to talk about non-bequest plan gifts because there are some and I do think that this is where the technicalities feel complicated for organizations can you talk a little bit about what the other plan giving vehicles are and should charities be thinking about being proactive with them you know the great part about 2018 is that now the actual advisors tied to these types of vehicles are getting more educated and that's what we're doing at cgp is going out and advising them in their own professional associations so tax insurance accounting all of that really there's more proactivity out there uh, you know, and let me really plug the one resources that charity's got to be connecting to. There's one book. We're so lucky in Canada. It's literally called Plan Giving for Canadians. And the book's been around for 25 years. We update it for tax and strategy every 18 months or so. So it literally has a marketing calendar for bequests, tweets to talk about life insurance, all of those templates like the one I talked about, the bequest template, and the book's like $125. Like anybody will make 10 grand in a year if they invest in this, but that's the main resource. And it's got all the policies, procedures, and templates. But those other ones out there, and I don't want to get overcomplicated with this, but you know, there's life insurance, there's RSPs, there's annuities, there's a lot of other things a donor can do. But even when we host our courses, we see fundraisers and charity staff getting lost in all of this. Mm-hmm. And if you're lost, make sure, no mistake, the donor's lost. Yeah. So we really got to keep that conversation circled on their love and connection to the organization. Mm-hmm. And then the technical side is really up to them and their advisor. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so you, I just want to sum that up with saying you don't need to learn everything. Yeah. Um, it's really about, and, and we see this with all types of fundraising, is, is building that commitment and then doing what's right for the donor and giving them the tools to either talk to their financial advisor, talk to their lawyer about their, uh, their will, or talk to the organization about you know what other opportunities there are. So that's... That's fantastic. You know, I'll give you an example. One of the things that people who listen to this can do, uh, because I teach several different courses on plan giving, colleges, and through CAGP, the key, the key exercise is actually talking to a loved one, talking to your parents or someone that you care about to help them to make their eventual legacy gift to whatever charity, not your charity, because actually it's even better if it's another organization. What do they care about? And say to them, would you do this? And when you, they understand, and there are some tax benefits and it's part of the estate, but do you care enough to do it? And if they say yes, finding the one pager from that charity, mm-hmm. helping them to get their will done and including it, you'll see how difficult this can all be. And once you've done it in a reverse engineered way with someone you love, doing it with your donors will be way easier. Definitely. And these are conversations that I think more and more as there's a transfer of wealth, like people are starting to think about... Uh, differently, which brings me to my next question, which is you sort of gave us a, those time periods when people are typically making their wills, although I th- 
I don't know why people, when they first have kids, is not on there because that's such an important time. But that's a whole other conversation. Um, but what about a younger demographic? Because I actually have started to see more younger donors um, build giving into their wills at the time when they might be having kids or just thinking about um, protecting themselves uh, and their estates over the long term. What trends are you seeing there? Or- well, this is a 20-plus year trend, unfortunately, uh, between the advisors and even the charity professionals in this space. Uh, nobody ever does it when they need to. The number one time that a Canadian makes a will is actually before a vacation. So they're, they're going off someplace hot in Cuba or whatever, and they're just trying to wrap it all up, and they're making decisions over everything they have in life. You know, as a charity, if you asked an average Canadian for $1,000, they would be like, oh, I'm not sure. I really got to think about this. And then they're like, well, what about everything you have on earth? You're going to Cuba next week. And they're like, all right, let me make some crazy decisions and throw darts against the wall. And they spend more time thinking about who gets the cat than who gets the house. Wow. So this is the yeah. piece where as well recognize that when donors are making wills, the charity conversation, a lot of that is not a priority. They're moving quickly. If they call you on a Thursday, that means they're going to see their lawyer on a Friday. So or you Thursday gotta, afternoon. That's right. Yeah. Or on the way too. So again, this is the key thing. We used to say have this one pager and have it at your fingertips, have it at your front desk. But even more important is having it on your website, downloadable, because they're going to download it at two at night because they're going to the lawyer in the morning. Yeah, that's so great. And we actually have a podcast episode with Avery Schwartz from Camp Tech talking about websites and maintaining your websites. So there's going to be lots of great content because it shouldn't be complicated to just throw that up on your site really easily. And if it is, you need a new site. Um, I want to, uh, I know you have, we've already heard lots of great stories, but I'd love for you to tell us a story of for a small organization that really invested in doing these few simple things consistently and how it paid off. You know, one of my roles was working with a large group of churches who are essentially small individual charities. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it was really tough because culturally, yeah, that's what you're trying to do is create a culture. They have a culture of asking and giving, the baskets, the plate, or whatever. But when it comes to plan giving, they're really scared of it. And I said, this is kind of crazy because you actually bring people in here and you baptize them at birth and you bury them afterwards. Like you're naturally having these conversations. And they were the ones who were the most afraid of having some of these conversations. And in fact, when they put into place these kind of procedures, having the one pager in the office, making sure in the church bulletin they say, if you want to do this, here's the time. When people come to the office to say, I'm looking to give and there's checks, reminding them they can give through securities. In fact, there was this one small church where we found they had a massive growth in bequests. And we called them and said, what are you doing? Are you announcing it off the pulpit? Are you doing some special insert in your church? No. They took an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and then they mounted it at Costco for eight bucks. <laughs> and the little piece of paper that they put in between the doors leaving the institution said, please remember the organization in your will if you give it, if you care. Wow. And it was all about quiet, consistent, constant. Heck, we're Canadians. We love passive aggression. <laughs> we don't like the ask and we don't like to be asked. Yeah. Right? So that's another thing too. If you don't like it, if this all feels gross, your gut is right. Let's make it easy and comfortable. And the way to do that again, quiet, consistent, constant. If you set a system in place, it'll happen. But if you think you've got to motivate everything, you know, there's a, some ego tied into this. Mm-hmm. It's not about us. It's yeah. about them. Yeah. 
And I think that's true of all fundraising, which is such a great, um, great way to think about it. I think that's all my questions. Uh, I think the biggest thing that I'm hearing is that it's not complicated. It's simple and straightforward. And you've given our audience really great, specific, actionable advice that they can do tomorrow or this afternoon, depending on what time you're listening, to to actually take a step towards this. And I can't tell you, I know you know how valuable that is for for small charities in Canada. So thank you so much. Well, there we go. Everybody tomorrow can use the special charity case method to find all they need, which is copy and steal everything, right? So go to your charitable neighbors in your local community, find out who's got these simple bequest documents, and that's all you got to do is get your legal title in there, get your charitable registration number in there. But again, we'll give you a link uh, from the podcast as well to that book, Plan Giving for Canadians. And then this is also what my colleagues at Canada Helps do. They're the ones to help small charities get access to the securities donations of public stocks and mutual funds. It's a it's a free program. Now it's the largest multiple charity uh, giving program in all of Canada. So they can get access to this truly tomorrow. And again, don't overthink it. Focus on the love of your donor to the organization and do the one or two steps and then get back to fundraising. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks so much, Paul. Great. Thanks for having me. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week. Mm